Good evening, everybody. I wrote an article entitled Life from Ancient Egypt, which appeared in a journal um, some time ago, and I thought that, first of all, I would read that to you, and then we might listen to a little ancient Egyptian music, and then perhaps I might tell you about some of my mystical experiences uh, the last time I was in Egypt. Desert hills and monuments of antiquity combine with the Nile and the sun to give to Egypt its mystical quality of agelessness. In Levi Dowling's The Aquarian Gospel of Jesus Christ, we read, that Egypt is the land of secret things. The mysteries of the ages lie lockbound in our temples and our shrines. The masters of all times and kinds come here to learn. For some think that a curse was pronounced upon those who opened the tomb of the gentleman whose name should probably be pronounced Tutank Amun even though I believe Howard Carter <coughs> called him Tutankhamen. Lord Carnarvon and a number of others associated with the enterprise were visited by premature deaths. And these were not the only inexplicable and possibly sinister happenings. I do not propose to discuss the arguments for and against such events being due to a pharaonic curse but want to say that even if they were, the message which ancient Egypt has for us is one not of curses, but of blessing, not of darkness, but of light. We receive light from the sun, worshipped by ancient Egyptians at dawn on the roof of Dendera's Temple of Hathor, goddess of the eastern horizon. The sun is our life-giver, so is the air, while we breathe, we live. Shu, S-H-U, was worshipped in Egypt as god of air, breath, or spirit. Christians embrace the ancient wisdom by believing in one who is the creator of light and giver of life, the divine spirit in whom we live and move and have our being. Christians believe in life beyond death. So did the ancient Egyptians. They maintain that the spirits of the dead accompany the sun god on his daily journey, and that at night they are to be seen in the sky as the venerable ones, the imperishable stars around the heavenly pole. Of the seven wonders of the ancient world, only one survives, built at least 2,000 years before any of the others, the Great Pyramid at Giza. Modern technological man has lost that sense of wonder which inspired the builders of the pyramids and Wordsworth to exclaim, My heart leaps up when I behold a rainbow in the sky, and Keats to compose the sonnet to sleep, beginning, O soft embalmer of the still midnight. The ancient Egyptians expressed their sense of wonder in architecture, obelisks, pyramids and temples, music, dancing, poetry and painting all of which were expressions of worship. Pharaoh Akhenaten, in his hymn to Aten, the sun disc, says, Thou arisest fair in the horizon of heaven, O living Aten, beginner of life. When thou dawnest in the east, thou fillest every land with thy beauty. Thou drivest away the night when thou givest forth thy beams. 
Akhenaten abolished all the gods and goddesses of Egypt, with the exception of the sun disk, who was henceforth to be the only object of worship. He is therefore widely reckoned to have been the first historical figure to have believed in and taught monotheism. I am not alone in finding this theory unacceptable. After Akhenaten's death, the Egyptians restored their many gods and goddesses, all of whom, as will be shown later, they considered to be emanations from and personifications of the One God. Following words from a hymn addressed to Amun-Ra, are no less beautiful and no less monotheistic than Arknaten's hymn to the sun disk. My heart desires to see thee, O Lord of the acacia trees. Thou art a protector of the poor, a father to the mothers, a husband to the widow. Sweet it is to speak thy name. It is like the taste of life, like the taste of bread to a child, like the breath of freedom to a prisoner. Turn thyself to us, O Eternal One, who wast here before time existed. Though thou makest me to see darkness, yet cause light to shine on me, that I may see thee. Joyful is the man who sees thee, O Amun. Amun is the hidden one. Ra is the sun. Amun-Ra could be translated as the hidden one who is the source of light. We today need to recapture that sense of wonder felt by the ancient Egyptians which impelled them to worship. We read in the beginning of the Gospel of St. Matthew that the angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, and take the young child of his mother, and come to and be thou there until I bring thee word. So Matthew does not tell us how long the Holy Family stayed in Egypt. Tradition says that it was for seven years. Inside the walls of a Roman fortress near the Nile in Old Cairo is the 6th century Coptic church of St. Sergius, standing on the site of a 3rd century church. The crypt is reported to have been the house where Mary and Joseph and the young child lived. In those days, its floor, now 20 feet below the earth, would have been on ground level. In the centre of it is a well which supplies the Holy Family with water for their everyday needs. At Mataria is a sycamore known as the Virgin's Tree, growing in a well-watered herb And nearby, in Cairo's suburbia, is the site of what was once the Temple of the Sun, called On, O-N, by the Egyptians, that's the name given to it in the Old Testament, and Heliopolis by the Greeks. All that now remains of this celebrated temple is a single obelisk, which in 1200 AD still retained its cap of copper. The purpose of an obelisk was to radiate the divine light of the sun, In the book of Genesis, we are told that because Joseph had interpreted his dreams, Pharaoh made him the second ruler in Egypt, giving him to wife Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, who no doubt initiated his Hebrew son-in-law into the Egyptian mysteries. The sun god, originally called Atum and later Ra, had been worshipped at own for at least 3,000 years before the incarnation of Christ. Much of the religious literature of Egypt came from the priests of own, 
and their teachings were widely disseminated throughout the country, so that Ra became the most venerated of all the Egyptian deities. During the Greek period, these priests, what had been renamed Heliopolis, were venerated for their wisdom. Herodotus consulted them, and Plato is said to have spent 13 years at Heliopolis. When Strabo came there in about 20 BC, the city had been destroyed, but the temple was still intact, and travellers were shown the house where Plato had lived. The priestly school had ceased to exist, but there were still priests officiating in the temple. Think of the child Jesus at Heliopolis, ancient centre of Egyptian sun worship. That child who was one day to say of himself, I am the light of the world. As Christians we would affirm that the cosmic Christ imparts something of his nature to mankind through the light-giving sun which radiates warmth. And warmth means love which is what God is. One day, Joseph, the carpenter, might have said to the child Jesus, Today you and I will cross the Nile in a felucca by moonlight and will be standing on the right front paw of the Sphinx, facing due east as the first rays of dawn appear on the horizon. Having enjoyed the dawn, we will then go back to your mother for breakfast. The next morning, as the little boy was excitingly recording in detail this wonderful experience to his mother over breakfast, she was musing upon the fact that in her child are to be fulfilled the words of Malachi concerning the dawn of a new hope for mankind. And to you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. According to one who claimed to have read the Akashic record, Mary's child returned to Egypt years later. The Aquarian Gospel of Jesus the Christ, from which I have already quoted a passage, describes at some length the initiation of Jesus as a young man into the ancient mysteries at Heliopolis. The day of days, the most wonderful that I have ever lived through. So Howard Carter spoke of November the 26th, 1922, the day on which he stood before the second sealed doorway which blocked the entrance to the tomb of Tutankhamun. At last we had the whole door clear before us. The decisive moment had arrived. With trembling hands I made a tiny breach in the upper left-hand corner. What he and his colleagues saw that day was later described by one of them as an incredible vision an impossible scene from a fairy tale. The heaped up riches of a pharaoh who had died before Crete had passed her zenith, before Greece had been born, or Rome conceived. On the third day after the crucifixion of Jesus, people looked into another tomb. Mary Magdalene, Peter, John and others might any of them have used Carter's words in describing the first Easter day, the day of days, the most wonderful that I have ever lived through. Easter day began like every other day with its dawn. But that particular dawn is what Easter is all about. So Matthew says, in the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn towards the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulchre. 
St. Mark says, Very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came out of the sepulchre at the rising of the sun. When we are having a sleepless night, caused it may be by illness, or worry, or fear, how we long for the dawn. We experience nightmares in the darkness. For the friends of Jesus, the nightmare of Good Friday was followed by the splendor of Easter Day. The dawn brings new hope. Heaviness may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. St. Clement of Alexandria said that Christ has turned all our sunsets into dawns. Ancient Egyptians, anticipating the triumph of Easter, confidently looked forward to life beyond the grave. On the rim of a lotus-shaped alabaster cup found by Howard Carter in the antechamber of Tutankhamun's tomb are the words, May thy spirit live, mayest thou spend millions of years, O thou who lovest Thebes, seated with thy face turned to the north wind, and thine eyes contemplating felicity. In the heat of Egypt in midsummer, the north wind blowing from the Mediterranean is cool and refreshing. Prehistoric burials in Egypt provide evidence of a belief in life after death in those far-off days. Arriving at historical times with the invention of writing, we find that the pyramid texts carved in hieroglyphics on the walls of pyramids at Saqqara, the necropolis of Memphis, contain innumerable references to immortality. The inscription of these texts was wrought in the 3rd millennium B.C. But Egyptologists reckon that many were in existence long before in oral form. Here are a few quotations from them. Pharaoh comes, an imperishable spirit, like the morning star over the Nile. How fortunate is thy condition! Thou art a spirit, O Pharaoh, among thy brothers, the gods. Thou purifiest thyself in the dew of the stars. Pharaoh is on his way to heaven, on the wind. The texts I have quoted refer to the immortality of Pharaoh. Here is one in less exclusive terms. The spirit belongs to heaven, the body belongs to the earth. By the end of the sixth dynasty, queens were thought to have immortal souls. And by the eleventh to twelfth dynasties, that is, from the twenty-first century BC onwards, ordinary people. What a remarkable similarity there is between that ancient pyramid text, the spirit belongs to heaven, the body belongs to the earth and the following early Christian inscription in Rome's catacombs. Thy body thou gavest to the earth, thy soul found its reception in the radiant light of Christ's glory. One of the Egyptian gods was Osiris. According to tradition, he had reigned long ago in the Delta as a righteous and much beloved king. He suffered a violent death at the hands of his brother Set. But he rose from the dead. Sir James Fraser in the Golden Bible says, In the resurrection of Osiris, the Egyptians saw the pledge of a life everlasting for themselves beyond the grave. As Osiris died and rose again, so all men hoped to arise from death to life eternal. Christians would say that the Osiris myth was fulfilled historically in the death and resurrection of Jesus. According to the Egyptian religion, 
The heart of a human being could only be deemed worthy to enter the abode of the blessed death after being weighed by thought in the scales of righteousness against the feather of truth in the presence of Osiris, judge of departed spirits. Thus, Osiris, who prefigured Christ in his death and resurrection, prefigured him also as judge. St. Augustine wrote, That which is called the Christian religion existed among the ancients and never did not exist from the beginning of the human race until Christ came in the flesh, at which time the true religion which already existed began to be called Christianity. Statues and paintings of Isis and her child Horus, the Saviour, were surely executed under divine inspiration, being in the foreknowledge of God prototypes of the Virgin Mary and her child. Some of the titles of Isis are accorded by Catholic and Eastern Orthodox Christians to Mary, the Virgin Mother, Our Lady, Queen of Heaven, Star of the Sea. The emblem known as the Ankh, spelled A-N-K-H, is abundantly carved and painted in temples and tombs. It consists of the cross of life surmounted by the circle of eternity. The early Coptic church in Egypt adopted the Ankh as the Cruz and Sata, which means the cross in the shape of a T, as it is on the egg. The empty cross, unlike the horrific crucifix, signifies that Christ, once crucified, is risen from the dead. The Egyptians worshipped a great number of gods and goddesses, but they were all personifications of the one supreme deity. A text of the 24th century BC speaks of Artum, the creator god of Heliophanes, bringing the other gods into being. An even older text of Memphis, of which the name of the creator god was Ptah, says, The mighty great one is Ptah, who transmitted life to all gods. And here are some extracts from various ancient Egyptian writings. The only true living God is not graven in marble, he is not beheld, his abode is not known. There is no building that can contain him. His commencement is from the beginning. He is the God who has existed from old time. No mother bore him. No father hath forgotten him. He is a God-Goddess, created from himself. All gods came into existence when he was man. The pyramids and temples were conceived and built by people who had a great knowledge of mathematics. But today's cleavage between science and religion was unknown to them for they were both mathematicians and mystics, astronomers and astrologers. The King's Chamber in the Great Pyramid contains an empty granite sarcophagus without a lid. It is generally believed that the pyramids, of which about 70 have survived, including 11 at Giza, were built to be burial places of pharaohs. Some of the smaller ones undoubtedly were. But no bodies have been found in the larger ones, and as far as the Great Pyramid is concerned, no mummy has been found in it, and there are no wall paintings and no funerary artifacts, nor is there any evidence of its having been ransacked by robbers. What then was its purpose, if not to be a temple of initiation into the mysteries? 
Iamblichus, 3rd century AD Neoplatonic philosopher, describes initiation ceremonies which took place in underground chambers connecting the Sphinx to the Great Pyramid. It seems highly probable that the empty sarcophagus in the king's chamber never contained the mummy of a pharaoh, but was used for initiation. The candidate lying in it experienced the death of his earthly nature and the rising of his spirit to an awareness of its immortality. St. Stephen, the first Christian martyr, says of Moses that Pharaoh's daughter took him up and nourished him for her own son, and that he was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. It seems not unreasonable to suppose that she sent her adopted son to Giza to learn the ancient wisdom from priests in the great pyramid of Khufu. At the burning bush, the Lord revealed himself to Moses as Jehovah. I am, that is who I am. In his book, The Great Pyramid Decoded, which you'll find on the table there, Peter Lemazurier persuasively argues that Jehovah, Y-H-W-H, is a Hebrew rendering of the Egyptian Khufu, H-W-F-W. If this be true, it tells us that Judaism, which was eventually to blossom into Christianity, had its roots not only in Chaldea, but also in Egypt. Concerning reincarnation, the learned Egyptologist Dr. Margaret Murray, in her book The Splendor That Was Egypt, says, the car names, and that's, un, that's not motor cars, but K, the car names of the first two kings of the 20th dynasty, 12th century BC, show this belief clearly. Amenemhat I's name was he who repeats births, and Sensusert I's name was he whose births lived. In the 19th dynasty, the car name of Seteti I was Repeater of Births. And it was by this epithet that he was addressed by the god Armon at Karnak. Pythagoras is usually credited with having invented the theory of reincarnation. But it was already hoary with age before the Greeks had emerged from barbarism. So writes Dr. Margaret Murray, who worked with Sir Flinders Petrie. It is widely assumed that Christianity knows nothing of reincarnation. In fact, the doctrine is to be found in the New Testament and the works of a number of the fathers of the Church, Anglican divines and Christian poets. God, down the ages, had been preparing mankind for the coming of the Messiah, not only through Hebrew channels, but through Zoroastrianism, Buddhism, Greek mythology, and the wisdom imparted to those who dwelt in the Nile Valley. Much Egyptian knowledge of spiritual matters must, of course, have been imbibed by those Hebrews who in Old Testament times either visited Egypt or lived there. We become increasingly aware of this the more we realize the psychic and esoteric nature of the Bible in which the wisdom of ancient Egypt is embedded and through which it shines. And now, let us imagine ourselves on that historic plateau at Giza, looking up at the Sphinx and thinking of those who, amongst countless others, have stood where we now stand, going chronologically backwards. Napoleon, 
Saladin, Julius Caesar, Alexander the Great, Plato, Pythagoras, Moses, Jacob, Abraham and Sarah, who in about 2050 BC were looking at a sphinx which at that day Egyptologists said was already 600 years old. Those with esoteric knowledge maintain that it is a great deal older. But amongst those who have stood before the Sphinx, you will say that I have omitted the most important people of all, Joseph, Mary, and their child. No, I had not forgotten them. I purposely left them to the end. When he had grown to manhood, Jesus said, Before Abraham was, I am. The life of Christ was not a period of some 33 years in Palestine in the first century AD. Not only does it extend without limit into the future, as is indicated by his resurrection appearances, it had also been from all eternity before the birth of Bethlehem took place, before Abraham was, I am. Father, thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. Speaking of the Israelites wandering through the wilderness in the 13th century BC, St. Paul says that they drank of the spiritual rock with them, and that rock was Christ. When it is said that everything which took place before the birth in the stable at Bethlehem happened before Christ, this of course means before his assumption of our human nature. The light from ancient Egypt was and is Christ, to whom the Sphinx bears witness. Numerous empires have arisen and passed away since that majestic figure with a lion's body and a human head was carved out of native rock in the form of a gnome on the Giza plateau. It faces due east, and as the guidebooks tell us, has witnessed over a million dawns. What a symbolic message. If the Sphinx whom the ancient Egyptians called Hu, H-U, the Shining One who came into being in the image of Ra. If this Shining One were to decide to utter, he might say, For as long as I can remember, the sun has never failed to rise, thus signifying God's love for humanity. Join me not only in looking for tomorrow's sunrise, but also in praying that a troubled world, enveloped by darkness, may awaken spiritually to the dawn of a new day. Now I'm going to listen to a little music, and I'll tell you how it came to be written and played. I have a friend who's somewhat older than I am, whose name is Dennis Stoll, and he was a friend of somebody much older than himself, who died, I don't know when, about 1960 I think, of whom I expect most of you will have heard, Sir Thomas Beecher, um, who uh, was conductor of the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra and Dennis Stoll became his deputy. Now, Beecham believed in the other world and knew that after he died he would live on. He also believed in reincarnation and it had been revealed to him that he had been with Dennis Stoll in more than one 
other life. And he told Dennis about this, and Dennis couldn't accept this at all. Well, you'll see, said Sir Thomas, I shall probably die before you do, and I shall speak to you from the other world, and you'll know about it then. Well, Sir Thomas Beecham died, and sure enough, Dennis Stoll found himself in Egypt. I don't quite know why, but anyway, he did. And there, he was in the temple at Karnak, and he heard some wonderful music. And then he heard the voice of his old friend Tom saying to him, Dennis, that music was composed uh, by you when you uh, were the chief musician in this temple at Karnak in the 14th century BC. And I want you now to recompose it for modern instruments and to form a band of temple dancers such as those for whom you composed the music long ago. Well, um, to cut a long story short, um, Dennis did what he was told, and uh, he gathered together a number of young ladies whom he trained uh, to dance to this music, which he kept hearing in his head. And it was his own music which he composed all those ages ago, and he composed it for modern instruments. And I thought you'd like to hear a little bit of it. Dennis Stahl uh, trained these girls in these dances, which must be quite a difficult thing for an elderly bachelor. Well, then he married, and between them, Dennis and Cherub Stahl decided to form an ancient Egyptian art association, and I became a member, and I went to a number of their meetings, weekends, and so on. In September 1981, I went with other members of the Ancient Egyptian Arts Association on a 600-mile cruise down the Nile from Aswan to Cairo. It was no ordinary holiday. Every day was holy. 
We did much sightseeing and learned a lot about the discoveries of Egyptologists. But it was primarily for each one of us a spiritual journey of self-discovery in which group reincarnation played a significant part. And in case any of you don't know what group reincarnation is, it means meeting people whom you've known in former lives and with whom you've been connected. My wife wasn't with me and so I had a cabin to myself which had advantages because one could get away and be quiet sometimes and this experience might not have happened to me if I hadn't been on my own. Very early one morning I was lying in bed in my cabin, wide awake, with my eyes open, looking upwards at the ceiling. A mist appeared, and out of it the faces of my brother and fifteen-month-old grandson, both of whom had died earlier that year. When, in the tomb of Ramesses VI, I laid my hands on Pharaoh's granite sarcophagus, they began to shake, and life-giving vibrations came shooting up my arms. I have since discovered that Madame Blavatsky said that the aura of granite is fire. The mighty pillars in the temple of Karnak are covered with hieroglyphs, including frequently the emblem called the Ink, which consists of the cross of life surmounted by the circle of eternity. Whenever I touched one of these Inks, I received energy. One stone had on it three small Inks, which I covered with my palm. Several members of our party stood watching. I felt vibrations running up my arm and then heard a voice saying, Patrick, I feel power coming into me. I recognized the voice as that of one of our party who I didn't even know was present. He was standing about ten yards behind me. Power from the stone coming into me was apparently being transmitted through space from me to him. I then noticed that the stone had inscribed upon it, in addition to the inks, a loaf of bread and a ureus. The loaf was a reminder that Jesus said, I am the bread of life. The ureus, a cobra on Pharaoh's forehead, emitting fire from its mouth, represented the burning eye of Ra, the sun god, who gives light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And what the ink that ancient symbol of immortality says is, of course, I am the resurrection and the life. In the tomb chapel of Ramos, who was governor of Thebes, I found myself being tossed from one shoulder blade to the other. Could I have picked up vibrations of the dilemma of Ramos being tossed between his loyalty under Armenides to Amun and the other gods and goddesses on the one hand, and on the other hand, his possibly enforced transference of loyalty to Akhenaten, promoting the worship of Aten, the sun's disk, to the exclusion of all other deities. It seems likely, for I have good reason to believe that I myself was involved in that stormy period of Egyptian religious history. Sitting cross-legged on a stone amongst the tombs of the nobles in blazing sunshine with my eyes shut, I saw the Nile. Down it was sailing an antique black boat with an orange sail. On the prow stood Isis. I have since discovered that the ancient Egyptians black symbolized rebirth and orange joy. 
To do justice to the significance of ISIS, I should have to write a book. Our party was granted special permission to enter a tomb not open to the general public. It is that of a 14th century BC artist named Travechnet. The lovely paintings on its walls and ceiling were executed during his lifetime by him, who was one day to reincarnate as Mozart and later as Sir Thomas Beecham. Dennis Stoll told me that Sir Thomas believed that he had been Mozart. And if you can take all that, when you're listening to an orchestra playing Mozart's music and uh, conductor being Sir Thomas Beecham, uh, the conductor is the man who composed the music. And you see, he had been friendly when he was an artist in Egypt with this conductor of music in the Temple of Karnak who was one day to become Dennis Stoll. Approaching the Temple of Kator at Dendera, I became aware of energies beneath my feet. I rocked backwards and forwards and then from side to side and had to use great willpower to prevent myself falling over. It is now our last day for returning to England. I am in the museum at Cairo, standing in front of Tutankhamun's death mask of solid gold. There are parties of tourists all around, with guides speaking in many languages. I am scarcely aware of them. In a great stillness, the compassionate eyes of the young pharaoh look at me down thirty-three centuries. At length he smiles and utters those to me familiar words which are my family's motto, Do well and doubt not. I leave his presence in a state of ecstasy. Two days after my return to Wiltshire, I went for an evening walk on the Downs. In a majestic orange-tinted cloud, I saw prancing horses, heads of pharaohs, and towering up behind them, the citadels of heaven. Now you've had enough of me. I want to hear you. Questions, please. Yes. Well, um, I didn't know what was happening the first time it happened. It was in the tomb of Ramses VI. And we'd started very early that morning, which was wise. When it's so hot, it's a good thing to do, sightseeing in the early morning. And we'd already seen, by about 10 o'clock in the morning, we'd already seen about three tombs, I think, if not four, including two Tenkamuns. And then we came out of his tomb and went round the corner to the Ramses the Sixth Tomb High. And I was feeling pretty weary. And I found myself at the back of our party. And we went down and down and down into the earth. And there were all these wonderful paintings on the, on the walls and the ceilings where we went down and down and down into the bowels of the earth. And eventually we arrived at the um, broken sarcophagus of the pharaoh. His mummy's no longer there. I mean, I could see that that's what it was. And already our guide had finished his little lecture that he was giving to our party. And all I wanted to do, because I, I was feeling weary, was to sit down, which I did, on a little ledge by the side of this sarcophagus. And I put one hand onto it like that and it just started doing that and I, I could feel energy coming out my arm and then I put my other hand on and it happened with both of them and our guide um, said well now come on we've, we've got another four tools to be visited this morning you see and so our party started going 
upstairs again. Well, I waited as, as long as I could. And I felt quite a different person as I, I was walking up again. And after all, it had been down. He was coming into the tomb. I was going uphill now. I felt I could run. I could almost jump over the moon. And if I stayed much longer, I mean, even if I stayed there 20 minutes with my hands on that granite, I don't know what would happen. But anyway, I, I was full of energy. And the, the curious thing was that, um, as I told you, it happened in different ways, in different places. You know, I mean, there was that through my hands, and then there was this rocking up and down, and the feeling that my feet were sort of um, being pulled into the ground. And then there was that experience where I went backwards and forwards from one shoulder blade to another. Uh, what it all meant, I'm still wondering. Yes. Nobody else did, except that young man on that one occasion who said he felt it coming through to him. What matters about our succession of earthly lives is that it's the same individual who goes on with the same characteristics. So although in my loss in your last life you, you may have been a, a Chinese female and you looked quite different from what you look now and dressed differently and your whole manner of life in China 500 years ago or whatever was quite different from what life is here for you in England now yet you're the same individual the same character and we presumably come back to earth to, uh, to develop uh, and improve our characters.